How is everyone doing today? That's fabulous. Okay. You can open up to Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> oh, sweet chair. I was talking to my friend, or one of my, oh, he's actually a, a client work. He's uh, one of my writing students. He's an older gentleman. He's in Toastmasters, and he was uh, talking about this speech that he's going to give in a couple of weeks, and, and he has it all laid out, and it's just perfect. And he said when he introduces the first part of it, he's going to be at the center stage, and, and then when he's talking about the traditional model for civil engineering, he's going to be at the left you know, side, I guess your, your right side. And then when he goes to the innovative, new, sustainable model for civil engineering, he's going to be on the other side. And, and I was like, wow, that's a really great plan. And I said, but Genesis has a chair. That's just, that's just wonderful. It's hard to pass up. Okay, let's go ahead and uh, pray one last time, and then we'll uh, begin our talk together this morning. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for this morning, for this opportunity to gather together with friends and family, to sit at your feet, see what you'd have to say. You're so faithful to speak every time that we do. Um, so, Lord, I... I trust this morning unto you. I pray that we would have you know, ears that are uh, you know, open and uh, hearts that are ready to receive and that you would just do uh, a special work today, um, Lord, and, and we're grateful for that. We're grateful that, you're, uh, that, that you are always just so willing and ready to do it, and uh, so... Lord, we thank you in advance, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. Okay, so Sam is out of town. He asked me if I would uh, share with you this morning, and he finished up last week his series, uh, The Truth Between Us, <coughs> and, um, and I asked him uh, what uh, he would be doing beyond this week and the forthcoming week, and maybe I can connect, you know, series, but, but he said, you know, after, after your week, it's Palm Sunday and then, then Easter Sunday and, uh, you know, Palm Sunday launches us into this, this period of time, uh, known as Passion Week, right? That begins with the triumphal entry and then Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And, uh, it's time that we're all familiar with, but in between that series and Passion Week is, uh, March 22nd, right? A uh, day that will live on in obscurity, right? Just one of those, just one of those days. And, uh, so I, I thought, what, what could I talk about in this, in this season, this transitional season? And, <clears throat> and I began to think, what was Jesus doing, um, before his entry into, uh, the, the, the holy city? What was he doing today? 2,000 years ago, a week before the triumphal entry, um, before Jerusalem worshipped him, before the guards arrested him, right, and before Judas betrayed him, and before we, you know, collectively in our sin crucified him, what, what was he doing at that time? And it's an amazing thing to consider. He knew full well what he was marching towards, marching towards his crucifixion in Jerusalem. 
um, reminding everyone that that's uh, clamoring around him, you know, ramping up for his exaltation. And and he keeps on reminding them, hey, you know, this, this, it's not what you guys think. It's it's not going to happen that way. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be murdered uh, very soon. It's it's just it's 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 eminent. And and everyone uh, gathering around him, and they're, and they're all talking. Uh, to him, there, there's an amazing amount of conversation during this last week of his life, delivering these kind of walking sermons as he's making his march from Galilee and through uh, Jericho and on to Jerusalem. And there's one moment in that week-long period of time that's captured in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and and it lingers in in my mind, and it has for this last week. And it's that moment that I, I want to share uh, with you. So if you are um, already in the book of Mark, the 10th chapter will begin uh, the story of blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10, verse 46. Now they came to Jericho as <clears throat> he went out of Jericho with the disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the sign of Timaeus sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And blind Bartimaeus, right? This, uh, despite the fact that we can read his name, he was not a named man, right? He may have been at one time. I'm sure he was. No one just has a son and, and goes, you know, you're my son. And that's all I'm going to call you for the rest of your existence. Right, so he probably had a name, but scripture doesn't record that name. It records the name of his, his father. The son was known by sight. The father was known by reputation. The father was Timaeus. Bartimaeus simply means the son of Timaeus. In Greek, that name, Timaeus, means highly prized. He was the son of the man that had taken upon himself the moniker of highly prized. And how far his son had fallen from, from this high place that his, that his father occupied. The father was highly prized, but we don't know why. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why a person would be valued in our society. And most of them are just bizarre to me. We prize the most unusual things. Um, all I know is that a child, right, your, your child, should be just your greatest and most highly prized gift from God. And yet this, this man considered himself to be the prize. And his child was sent to live in the streets. No doubt his, his disability brought shame to the family. And so he was a castaway. He was, he was a misfit. Jesus loves misfits. He builds his kingdom with them, like an island of misfit toys. You know, we gather together every Sunday. And there may have been a time when this young man was, was adored, uh, when he was seen as, as an individual of supreme value to his father. But we don't know that. What we do know uh, what is most uh, likely the scenario is that he had his sight, Bartimaeus had his sight just long enough to see everything that he would be losing 
with it. Had his sight just long enough to see this life dim and then disappear. His social status was stripped and all he knew and grew up in the midst of, and even his parents too, vanished. And he may have thought, all will abandon me, but they won't. But behold, they had. They were gone. He was left blind and a beggar on the streets. And his life was essentially over. And all that was left was existence. And I think that it's beneficial to talk about the difference between the two for a moment. I, um, I was thinking about this throughout the week, and my mind wandered to um, a book that I had uh, read, uh, well, I suppose a couple of months ago at this point. Um, it's, it's a book by the uh, author Kurt Vonnegut. It's a novel. I don't know if any of you guys like Kurt Vonnegut. If there are any Vonnegut fans in the house, and you're just like, whoop, whoop. Um, most of you <laughs> would, if you would probably hold that against me if you knew <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut was. Not the, not the most, uh, um, well, I'd say godly man in the world. His novels are just incredible, though. They're pseudoscience fiction uh, satire on culture and, and politics, and uh, they're just filled with dark humor that I, well, I treasure. And, <laughs> and in one of the last chapters of, of his book, um, which I, I think I'll just go ahead and intentionally withhold the name of. How about, how about, we, just, how about we just do that this morning? And, uh, in one of the last chapters of this book, he talks about how um, our lives are essentially divided into three parts, three parts that mirror the divisions in a novel, in all novels, really. He said that there's, there's this first part of the human experience that's, that's a preface, right, that happens before the story, right? So it's all the stuff that happens before the story, and, and it's the origin of this, of this life, and why maybe it was brought into the world, and, and the two people that got together and decided, you know, we are going to become parents, you know, um, and, and the plan and purpose of it all. Um, and then second, there's the story itself. And there are chapters and there's divisions, but this is the important part. This is the part, you know, worth telling. You set your goals, you, you decide what your purpose will be, and then, and then you set out to accomplish it. And you live your story. And sometimes it's a comedy, and sometimes it's a tragedy. And judging by you know, most of what I see um, on Facebook, it's, it's a drama, right? And, but that's your story. That's your story, right? And then third, and, and really unfortunately, Vonnegut says <clears throat> that, that sometimes there's this last part that he compares to an epilogue. There's an epilogue in our lives where, where the story is basically over. Your story is basically done. And all the important stuff is, is through. And when you read, an, when you read a story, uh, most of the time, if you're, like, if you're anything like me, you know that the story's over, so you don't even bother reading the epilogue. You just, you just skip it because it's, it's inconsequential details that for whatever reason the author just decided to include. Uh, it's, there's no real purpose to it, and so there's no real point in, in reading it. And, and he says, and this is from that book, he says, life 
as a shapely story has ended and all that remains to be experienced is epilogue. Life is not over, but the story is. You've exceeded the boundaries of your ambition and now without aim, you merely exist. Now I realize right, that that is incredibly depressing. <laughs> Beth is looking at me like, hey, maybe you could have left that out. You know, <laughs> um, I was talking to my coworkers about this yesterday, <clears throat> and uh, you, you know, I, I was talking about Vonnegut and, and this point in this book, and I, I remember reading it and just closing the book and going, "That was horrifying." You know, that wow, I'm not ready for that level of honesty, um, but I. I I was discussing this with them, and they said, hey, that's just the most depressing thing I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> and, 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 but but we, we went on to discuss this, that, that there, are, there are these people, and, and we've encountered them, maybe we are them, that, that live our lives and we're existing, and, and we, we, we find ourselves returning to the same part in our life whenever we go ahead and talk about our lives. And for some, it's high school. Right? And for some, it's college. For some, it's, it's our career. And we, we, we live in that moment because that's our story moment. We exist beyond it. Right? That moment is gone. But, but we constantly seek to return to it. We can't live in that moment, but we can't seem to live outside of that moment. We're merely, we're merely existing. And one of my coworkers looked at me and said, you know, that's, that's just terrible. And she left. She, well, she was done for the day. It's not like I said that and she quit. You know, that'd be, that'd be horrendous. Yeah. Uh, but uh, one of my other coworkers, she was, she's done. She's going through, you know, her client files and writing down all of her log notes and 10 minute passes and 10 minutes pass. And, and she looks up at me and she says, uh, um, what you said really bothers me. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry. And she said, no, it bothers me because I think it's true. And we ended up talking about what she's living for and if she's really living at all or if she's just existing. And, 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 and for one of the characters in the book, her story ended when she was 20 years old. That happened early in the story. You read all about the content that comes after that. For her, 20 years old, that's when she wanted to get married. And she grew up with this kind of fairy tale mentality that you meet your Prince Charming, you fall in love. It's all culminating with this moment that you walk down the aisle and have a grand wedding and you say, I do. And then you live happily ever ender, ever. But you don't, you don't write books after that point, do you? You, you just, you read in the fairy tales and that's it. That's the moment. And, 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 and then after that, the sun rose in the east. It's set in the west. She saw each day come and go. And she merely existed. For another man, it happened when he retired in the book. And he said, looking back at my life, that's, that's when it all happened for me. That, that, that career was my purpose. It was my adventure. That was, that, that was the entire reason why I was put on this planet. And now I don't know what's left for me. And for some of us, it's this great moment in our lives it's our best moment, and that becomes our story. And for some of us, it's our worst moment, and that becomes our story. And life beyond that is just 
epilogue. And for Bartimaeus, his story ended and his epilogue began the day he lost his sight. The day he lost his sight. He lost his sight and he lost his life all in one moment. This vexation, this curse that was put upon him. He thought, if I could just get that back, I can have my life back. I can have my story back. And, and, and he thought, I could, I could do more. And I can have more. And it could get better. It was taken from me. And it all ended prematurely. I can rescue my life from epilogue. And day and night, he thought, there's got to be a way. There must be a way to get back my sight, to get back my life. And then one day he heard of a man. One day he heard of a man. And Jericho was, was a very busy city. There were always people passing through and telling stories. And they said, there's a man, and he, he walked on water. There's a man, and he, he heals the sick. There's a man, he raised the dead back to life. There's a man, and he made the blind to see. And in the darkness of Bartimaeus, there was a spark of light. There's a spark of hope. And he thought, if I could meet this man, he would hear me. He would help me. He would heal me. And, and in a moment, it's all come true for him. And he hears the crowds clamoring all around him. And the name that they're saying is the very name that he was whispering to himself in the quiet night hours when everybody else had gone home and he was left on the street and saying to himself, Jesus. And he hears it and he cries out, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Release me from this prison. Ah, I can hardly imagine the moment. And then it's startling to think what happens next. These godly men walk with Jesus for three years' time, and this is their response. Let's read it together in verse 48. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Why did they tell him to shut up? Why did they try and silence him? Does that make any sense to you? And here, are the, in all three accounts, you have the same thing. In all three accounts, it says that they're trying to silence him. Actually, in Luke's account, it says that they rebuked him sharply. Why were they going out of their way to silence this man? These, these, these disciples of Christ, this crowd that had been with Christ for so long. And here's Jesus, and he's giving these walking sermons, and everyone's questioning him and challenging him and baiting him, and he begins to answer their questions about divorce and deliver parables comparing the Pharisees to the tax collectors and, and to widows, and, and, and the James and John are contending over who's going to sit on his right and on his left when the kingdom comes in. Very important things on their minds. Right. And, and, and then a man comes and he says, have mercy on me. I'm blind. I'm poor. I'm a beggar on the streets. And they say, you shut up. That's nonsense. Right? Shut up. We're talking. Holy men are talking here. Right. 
And, and, and I, I love the honesty of the Bible about its heroes. <clears throat> right? You've been reading the Bible far too long. If you can read that and just keep on going without missing a beat. This is one of those things that should cause you to pause and say, what a lot of idiots. I mean, they're just complete clods, these men. Clods, it's a good word. People don't use it enough. Impoverished and blind and crying out for mercy. And, and these men, and let's not, let's not, you know, leave our terms undefined here. Religious revolutionaries distinguishing themselves from the Pharisees. Oh, we're not like the Pharisees. We care about people. And then here's a man crying out and they just tell him to shut up. They rebuke him sharply. What a tragedy. But at the same time, you have to be honest. It's a really powerful picture of, of the church and Christianity. Right? I mean, it, we're so busy talking. Right? That's what was happening in this moment. Jesus was talking. The people were questioning. There was a conversation happening. We're so busy talking that we can barely be bothered to hear the cries for help. And this, this thing that we're doing right now, this isn't what's important. It's really not. And we've missed the entire point if we think that this is it. If this is is what's essential. We never be so caught up with our talking that we miss the people that are crying out. Those that are in the midst of the crowd that just need to be heard, that need to be healed. We're so busy with our conversations that, that it falls on deaf ears. We talk so loudly and so frequently and we listen so rarely. And yet, um, it's, it's nice to know that when we can't be bothered to hear, he hears. And when we can't be bothered to act, he acts. He always does. We miss an opportunity to be a part of it. But he does. And, you know, I could say that and, and I can leave it there, but, but I think there's something else here for, for, us to, for us to notice. Because maybe we aren't the ones that should be listening up. Maybe we're the ones right now that are crying out. We're the ones that, that are hurting. And you felt like no one really hears you or is willing to hear you and understand what you're going through. Um, I was, I was tutoring a girl. She's a junior high school student. And um, I've been working with her for a while. She went to point at something. She was kind of standing behind me and, and she, uh, she went to point and her sleeve pulled up when she pointed. I just saw all these cuts climbing up her wrist. And I thought, how could I have been so blind? I've worked with this girl for months now. How did I miss that? And in so many ways, every day, 
she had been crying out. And I just didn't hear her. Um, she's afraid that no one could hear her, no one could help her. And so that's what she turned to. And most of us, most of us would never think about doing anything like that. We wear our scars on the inside. And when we're hurting, that's where we bleed. It's just easier to hide there. And so we end up spending so much of our time hurting. And our response to that hurting is just to remain in hiding. And you know what? If if no one hears you, he always hears you. And you know that you, you can turn to him, right? You can call out to him, and he will heal you. And in verse 49, he, he stood still, and he commanded him to be called. He hears you, and he responds to you. He commands that to happen. This isn't a passive moment for him. Your pain isn't inconsequential to him. You are valued more than you could ever imagine by him. He stands still, and all of the universe is his to manage, and he stands still, and he commands for you to be called close to him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer. Rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose, came to Jesus. Be of good cheer. Or in your Bible, if you have the NIV, it says cheer up. Cheer up. I don't know why that tastes so bitter in my mouth, but it does. It just really does. Um, They ignore him. They rebuke him. They do everything to stop him and silence him. And then Jesus commands them to let him come. And they say, hey, uh, cheer up, guy. Jesus wants to see you. You know, maybe I'm reading the whole thing wrong. Maybe they were really happy for him. They really wanted him to be of good cheer. Um, Maybe they just wanted to appear spiritual in front of Jesus because they realized that they were, you know, not putting their their most godly foot forward. Or maybe they're just being really passive-aggressive here. And that's kind of the way it seems to read to me. The same way that, I don't know if you have an older sibling or if you are the older sibling, but your mom would tell you to share your toys. They didn't want to share Jesus. But this was that moment. They needed to share Jesus. And, and you know, your, your mom would say, you know, share the ball with your brother. And then if you're like me, because I'm the younger brother, he would come to me and be like, you know, here you go, have fun with your ball, you know, <laughs> just be really obnoxious about it. You know, that's, it's what it seems like they're doing here to me, you know, and, and I, as the younger brother would kind of look at him and be like, I don't think you have my best ball playing interests at heart right now. I don't really think you want me to have fun with the ball because it sounds like you're being incredibly passive aggressive. Um, but, but that's, that's what's happening here. And we don't know why they said it, but Bartimaeus doesn't really care why they said it. I'm sure he didn't 
care at all that they said anything. He shoots right past the snarky saints and runs to Jesus. Right? He runs to Jesus. And I'm sure right, he had his doubts. Yeah, he feeling trapped in this situation and, and with all of his uh, you know, self-imposed conclusions and, and assumptions uh, about his life, this life that had been dealt to him or the one that he had created for himself. And, and this is my life and this is all it's ever going to be. And, and all that he had as a beggar on the streets, maybe, his only possession listed scripturally was this garment and he was clinging to it and, and maybe he'd never even laid an eye on it, but he knew every inch of it and and this was this was all he had and 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 yet in a moment he throws it aside and runs runs to jesus and some of us i think just live our entire lives clinging to these old garments because we're so afraid of what might happen if we just cast them aside and run in a different direction, there's comfort in those old garments. But don't miss the point of this, that if he had hung on to that, this was a passing moment. He'd never get it back. Jesus was leaving Jericho on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. That's why Hebrew says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Listen, this is an important moment. He's in your midst. Grab hold of it. Don't, don't be afraid of it. He throws aside his garment and runs towards Christ. And so in verse 51, Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. And Jesus said, go your way. I really love that. And the choice is yours. I love that about Jesus. The choice is yours. He doesn't say, listen, I've done this for you. Now what are you going to do for me? I've done this for you, now you're indebted to me. He gave this man all that he hoped for, all that he dreamed about. And then he said, do with that what you want. Do whatever you want with that. And go your way, and if you want, uh, you know, and, and every night he dreamed about what he would do when this day came. Right? If I ever got my sight back, this is what I would do. Right? And he laid it out like it was a, like it was a strategy to claw his way back up to the top where his father sat in that highly prized position. He said, if I get my sight back, I'm going to go, I'm going to see my father. I'm going to reclaim my birthright. I'm going to, I'm going to get that old life back. Go for it. If you want it, Jesus says, it's yours. Have it if that's what you want. And he had what he always wanted. He had his sight. But in a moment, he realized that his sight was not his salvation. That his sight wasn't what he needed 
to get his story back, to start his story for the first time, to give him hope and life and longevity. It was Jesus. It was always Jesus. Now, friends, this is a, this is a serious point, but it's a point worth making. We spend so much of our lives thinking that there is one earthly element that we need to lay hold of in order to have the life that we desire, right? There's just this one thing that's out of place. And if it's aligned just right, that's, that's it. That's what I've been waiting for. That's the story that I've always been dreaming about. And Bartimaeus would say, maybe if he were here today, it was my father, right? If I just had things right with my father, it would all be right again. He would say, you know, maybe it's it's my poverty. If I just wasn't impoverished and on the streets, everything would be right again. He would say, maybe, maybe it's my sight. If I just had my sight, everything would be gone or everything would be right again. And in 2000 years, nothing has really changed, is it? It's a family problem. And we think if we answer that problem, everything will be right. Or it's a money problem. And if I just, if I just got that settled, then everything would be okay. Or we think it's a health problem. And if I just had that squared away, everything would be okay. And when he opened up his eyes, he realized it's been a Jesus problem the whole time. It's just been about Jesus. When Bartimaeus could see the man standing before him was Jesus. And it was the answer to all of his problems. It was the only answer to the problem. Jesus says you have what you wanted, right? Sight. That's all you ever wanted. He says, yeah, but it was a mistake. I wanted that, but I needed you. I always wanted that, but I never needed that. I needed you. And the rest of the story, the story worth telling, according to Bartimaeus, wasn't the story that he would be living going his own way. It was the story that he would be creating by following Jesus. There wasn't going to be an epilogue. The pen was meeting the paper that day. That was the story that was being being written. It was through existing. He was ready to start living. You know, growing up, I remember... <clears throat> getting off the bus um, every day after school at my grandma's house. I've talked about my grandma before, so you're all familiar with her. It's like she's here again. Yeah. Um, every day we get off the bus, she'd give us a little snack, and then we'd go for a walk up in the hills. Um, you know, my brother and I, her two or three dogs, depending on how many she had adopted at the moment, and people would just come. She'd be like, hey, I have a dog. Take the dog. She'd be like, okay. And she'd have another dog. Yeah. And we'd go for these long walks. Then we'd come home, 
And uh, we'd all sit around the table, and my grandpa would share stories with us, or his life stories. And he'd sit there in his loosely knotted red robe, <laughs> and, and he'd talk to us about his life while he was sipping his you know, watered-down Coke that he'd pour at the beginning of every day and then just load it up with ice throughout the day. And he'd smoke cigarettes. And um, he'd tell us about growing up in New York and about the war and about working for the mafia in Las Vegas as a chef because he did that too, you know. <laughs> Why not? And, and I love those stories, right? I could recite all of them word for word because I heard them so many times. Um, he'd just sit there and, you know, he'd take out his deck of cards and he'd deal my brother and I in because it's one of the things that he picked up working for the mafia. <laughs> and, and he said, did I ever tell you about the time when the drill instructor brought us all sweets and said, take as many as you want? And they'd always hold up one finger. You know, the drill instructor wanted to look magnanimous, but he was very prudent. So, uh, and I, I'd like, okay, no, I never heard that one, Grandpa. And he'd tell it again. And it wasn't until his funeral that I realized that none of those stories occurred in my lifetime. None of them. The last 20 years, the last 30 years were spent remembering a story but not continuing it. And listen, the reality is Vonnegut was actually wrong. I don't know if that's going to haunt you, what, what I said about Vonnegut. Um, but, it's, but it's wrong. Right? You're, our parents aren't the preface. God is. God is. He is responsible for your life. He is. They aren't. He gave you life. And in the first chapter of your life, at the very beginning of the story, he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to die on the cross for you. I'm going to offer salvation to you. Everything you could ever want, everything you could ever hope for or dream about, it's yours. You can do with that whatever you want. It's yours. You can decide to reject it and run away from it. Or you can embrace it and follow me down the road. I find, a, I find it really hard to believe when God wrote any of our prefaces that he planned for an epilogue. I find it impossible to believe. I think that he planned for all of us to live a life that's a story worth telling. A story that, that begins again every day that you see him and decide that you make the decision for yourself to go your own way or to follow him. The choice is entirely yours. But Jesus would say, I'm going down that road. If you want to, 
you can come with me. And I promise you life and life abundantly, not existence. Let's go ahead and pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful for the life that you offer us. The life that is more than we could ever hope, dream. Lord, it's a life lived with you, walking alongside of you. Lord, you hear us. You heal us. You're the company that stands beside us. You died on the cross for us. All of this is offered to us, and the choice is set before us. Do with it whatever you want. I thank you for that choice. I thank you that I get to choose you every day. Lord, that I have the supreme honor of waking up in the morning. And as soon as my eyes see the light of day, they see the Savior. Thank you, Jesus. I pray the, for all these that have gathered here this morning, Lord, that you'd be with us, walk alongside of us, and use us. Your name. Amen.